0: So, we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, hope you have your Bible, uh, and keep your finger in a page, because we might do a little, a lot of flipping around. So, before we look at Matthew's Gospel, right, I'm going to give a bit of background to the Synoptic Gospels. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three together are called the Synoptic Gospels. And what does Synoptic mean? So, optic has to do with the eyes, right, if you need to get glasses you see an obtrition and the word sin s-y-n means together right like synchronized so synoptic means looking at the same thing matthew mark and luke look at the life of christ and if you've read them before you'll notice that they tend to be similar think of a sports highlight you watch a soccer game and a player shoots the ball and he scores that is one thing that has happened that's one event right but if you watch if you watch the tv you will see different angles, different aspects of that goal, right? From this angle, you will see these kinds of things. From that angle, you will see different details. Um, and in the same way, the Synoptic Gospels do the same. They capture the same life of Christ, but we see different aspects of it from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of them put different emphasis on different things concerning the life of Christ. So we call these books... We call these books Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We call them that because they are quite a unique genre. The closest thing we have to a Gospel today in terms of genre is a biography, right? A biography of a man or a woman. But the Gospels are not quite biographies because if you've read them, they are narrative sections. So those are all your stories. There are discourse sections. So these are all your teachings, right? The teachings of Christ. There is biography. And we are told about the birth of Jesus and we are told about his death. Those are things often included in a biography. But then there's also historiography. So historiography is looking at the response of the people to the Lord Jesus Christ back in those days. And you will notice that in the Gospels. The Gospel writers are not just concerned about what Jesus says and and, and what he does, but they also show us how the people respond to him both the jews and the gentiles we see whether people believe him or whether they reject him so the gospels don't only focus on christ they also tell us about the pharisees and the sadducees and the romans the word the word gospel itself means good news right Uh, but good news in scripture is not just a statement right good news has the idea of a historical event the word has a lot of substance behind it So it's not just a statement like today's Monday, right? Or we're meeting on Google Meet at the moment. In the Greek, the word for gospel is euangelion, right? It's euangelion and meaning good news. And why it's a significant phrase is that during the Roman Empire, there was what was called a town crier, right? And this would be the guy who announces important things for the city. So he was like the media of the day. He would stand in the city center or the town square, and then he'd announce important things for the population, for all the people to hear. So for the Romans, the town crier would only announce good news on two occasions. Firstly, when the Roman army went out to war and they came back, if they had won, the the town crier would go to the main square and shout, good news, good news. The army has returned and they have conquered their enemies. Secondly, when a son was born to the emperor, right? When the son was born, the town crier would shout, good news, good news. A son has been born to the emperor. So basically, there were two occasions where there would be good news. When a general defeated the enemy or when the emperor had a son. So can you see how the New Testament picks up, picks up on that phrase? Especially in Mark's gospel, it says, good news, a son has been born. Good news, a victory has been won. Someone has come to defeat our enemies. So to the ancient hearers, when they hear the word the word good news, when they hear euangelion, it had a rich and a significant meaning, which is important for us to remember, right? Good news is God becoming a man. God coming into the world and defeating all of our enemies. And it really is good news. God become man coming into the world. It's, it's the real good news. And so Matthew's gospel it's the first book in the canon. Uh, most scholars actually believe that Mark, Mark's Gospel, was the first to be written, um, and then Mark, and then came Matthew, and then came Luke, in that order. But there's still a lot of like theories and debate around that. But every single book has a purpose, an intention. There's an audience, uh, a people that is being written to, and in the book of Matthew, the group that is being written to is the Jews. So Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience to let them know about the good news of a Messiah who has come. How do we know? How do we know that? Look at me with look with me to chapter one. So how does Matthew begin his letter? Chapter one verse one says, "The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham." Right. And uh, so, if if you're like me, what do you normally do when you start reading Matthew? You skip this part. And you jump straight to verse 18 of chapter 1, right? Because no one likes to read the genealogies. It's just names. It's just this person, the son of this person, the son of that person. But if you're Jewish at the time, genealogies are extremely important. In the book of Chronicles, there are these long lists of genealogies because in Judaism, it's very important to prove that you are a Jewish person. It was important for you to be able to trace your lineage. So Matthew appeals to Jewish sensibilities And it begins by saying, the book of the the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he mentions David, and then he mentions Abraham, and then he begins his genealogy from Abraham to Isaac and all the way to Christ. And if you look at verse 17, verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from, from Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew edits the genealogy to make it fit together. And the number 14, 14 is actually, if you take the name David, written in Hebrew. So remember that in the Hebrew language, each letter has a numerical value. And the name David adds up to 14. So, and David is also a very important uh, important character in the book of Matthew. And so is Abraham. So Matthew traces the lineage of Christ to Abraham. This is to prove that Jesus is Jewish. And more importantly, we see that he's the the descendant of King David. Now, do you guys know which other gospel has a genealogy? It's Luke's gospel, right? So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke's gospel. Go to Luke chapter 3 real quick. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of... Uh, as as was opposed of Joseph the son of Heli, so Luke starts with Christ, and then he works backwards in his genealogy, right? And if you read, uh, and you get to see who's at the beginning of the list, verse thirty-eight says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So can you see, can you see how firstly Matthew is using the term son of God, not necessarily in divine terms here, because he refers to Adam as the son of God. But more interesting is that Luke goes all the way back to Adam. So who do you think Luke's audience is based on that? So I would think that it's a more Gentile audience. Uh, he, doesn't go back to, he doesn't just go back to Abraham. He goes past Abraham all the way to Adam. And I say this because to the Jewish mind, where does it all begin? It begins with Abraham. right? When God called Abraham and chose Abraham as a nation, Whereas Luke, and you will see when we get to Luke's gospel, he's more universal. He's more universal. His focus is on everyone, which is why he goes back to Adam, right? Because this is concerning the whole human, human race, not just, um, the, not just the Jewish people. So Matthew begins with his genealogy to show that Christ uh, is a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and is a descendant of David. And why that is important is that David was a king. And we have the theme of Christ is the King, the ultimate King. So Matthew will use the phrase "Son of God" a lot, right? He uses it frequently in his gospel, but it has a different meaning to the way Mark uses "Son of God." Matthew uses "Son of God" referring back to the to the Davidic covenant, and we get that really from Second Samuel uh, chapter seven verse twelve, right? So you don't have to turn there. I'll read it quickly. So it says. Uh, This is God speaking. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Then verse 13 says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So you see what God is saying there. There's this promise that God will be his father, the Messiah's father, and he will be his son. So this descendant of David will be a son of God. So when Matthew talks about the son of God, it's not so much the divinity of Christ, but the fact that he's a descendant of David and that he's a king. So throughout Matthew, you realize that even though it's primarily written to the Jews, all the way there's these little hints about including Gentiles into God's kingdom, into God's people. And then right at the end of the book, it says, go and make disciples of all the nations. right. God sent his message of salvation to the Jews first. He even He even stopped the disciples from going to the Gentiles. And Paul will say that. He'll say that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And that is the order of redemptive history. Christ came to the Jews first. The gospel came to the Jews. It didn't go to, to Rome. It didn't go to um, uh, the Corinthians. It didn't go to Johannesburg or wherever. It came to Jerusalem. The Jew first, and then the rest of the world. So, if you turn to chapter two with Matthew, we see this in the beginning, right? In the beginning of the book, because we have the account of the wise men, and what did the wise men want to do? The wise men, the wise men were not Jewish, right? For one, they were from the Middle East, and they want to come and worship Jesus. So, worship is an important theme in Matthew's gospel. We have we have the focus on worship at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And then we have it at the end of the book as well. Uh, In Matthew 28, they all gather on a hill to worship him. And here's the helpful thing for you to do as you read the Bible, as you read uh, any book of the Bible. Look at the start, the beginning of the book, and then also read the end of the book. More often than not, you will get the main themes, right? the main message that the author wants to communicate. So if you look at chapter 2 verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So, notice the phrase, He is the king of the Jews. Herod is also a king, and Herod was a cruel man who killed anyone he felt threatened by. And here he's freaked out about some king of the Jews that's a threat to him, so he plans to kill Jesus. And then, verse 13. uh, and he's in a dream to flee to Egypt, right? Jesus goes into Egypt and what is the occasion for them going into Egypt while well, the babies are going to be killed by Herod. So remember the story of Moses uh, and how he survived little babies were being killed by Pharaoh, right? So picture yourself as a Jewish reader and Matthew saying this, and you will see this link between Moses and Christ, right? Moses and Jesus. And of course, you and I know that Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses was a foreshadow. He was a type of Christ. Uh, Moses was a deliverer. And so Jesus is being portrayed as the new deliverer. And Matthew will use the phrase fulfill a lot, right? So if you look at verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, and they remained there. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. And then verse 17, it says again, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So he says it quite frequently. And what you see in Matthew is that his gospel is full of allusions to the Old Testament. It's it's actually very sophisticated. Normally, when we look at prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy, uh, we see them as those obvious ones, right? Like the one where we read about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. That's clear and obvious, right? But Matthew shows us that It's much broader than that, right? Just, just him going down into Egypt. There is no prophecy saying that the Messiah will go down into Egypt in the old Testament. There's no, there's also no prophecy saying that the Messiah will be a Nazarene. And yet Matthew will say that it might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. So you won't find that in the Bible, right? You won't find the Bible saying that he will be called a Nazarene. But why does Matthew say this? It's a way of saying that term. First of all, is a way of saying that he will be rejected, because to be a Nazarene at the time was to be from a place where people despise you. But basically, Matthew's point is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. All the the foreshad- all the shadows, all the types point to him. It's all prophecy being fulfilled in Christ. So like, when you read this book, keep an eye out on that. Like notice the link that you will see a lot of fulfilling. But you won't really pick up the explicit passages in the Old Testament. Okay. So this book, when it comes to its structure, um, it's centered and structured around five discourses, five teaching sections. In Matthew's Gospel, the focus is on Jesus Christ as a teacher. It's very different from, St. Mark's Gospel, where Jesus doesn't do a lot of teaching there, right? So the first discourse is from... Is the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount, right? I think we're all familiar with that. It's quite famous, famous passage of scripture. So I'll put the, the discourses and the uh, descriptions in the comments section. Um, the first discourse is Matthew 5 to 7, right? That's the Sermon on the Mount. The second discourse is Matthew 10 to 11. So this is where Jesus is teaching on missions and martyrdom, right? Living for the sake of Christ. The third one, the third discourse, is the parables. So we're all familiar with uh, most of the parables to some degree. And this is in Matthew 13, uh, chapter 13. And then the fourth one is Matthew 18 to 19. So this has to do with life as as believers, mostly in community, right? Um, Mostly in in, uh, in, in covenantal, so in, in church life. Uh, church discipline, kingdom authority, etc. And then the fifth discourse is the Olivet discourse. So this is where Christ is talking about the end times. He's talking about the end times, and he's also talking about the destruction of the temple in the year uh, seventy AD. So in this se- in this session tonight, that's the five main areas we want to look at, and it's it's a lot of scripture. So we won't get through all the nitty gritty details, but. Hopefully, by the end of this, you'll get an idea and understanding of uh, what is going on. So, let's look at the first discourse. We have the Sermon on the Mount. So, if you turn to chapter 5. So, I mentioned there's this link between Jesus and Moses. How does the Sermon on the Mount point us to Moses? So, Moses was on the mountain. He went up to the Lord and got the Ten Commandments. And Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments here. And he expands on them. So just like Moses gave the law to Israel, Jesus is giving the law to Israel on the mountain again. So there's all these pictures that remind us of Moses. But he's the greater Moses, right? He's greater than Moses because, remember Moses was saying, God said you should do this. God said you should not do this, right? Uh, But Jesus says, I say to you, do this. I say to you, don't do this. Jesus speaks on his own authority. Moses never spoke on his own authority. And he never told people to worship him. He was just saying what God had said. Jesus spoke on his own authority and said, don't look with lust. Right? Jesus spoke on his own authority and said, don't hate. And these teachings, they form a challenging but practical ethic that Christ expects us, that he expects me and you as his followers to live by, even in this present, present age. So in chapter 5 verse, uh, verse 3, Jesus teaches us who will be blessed. So verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so on and so forth. And we see that Jesus came to confirm the law. So he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from, from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament in that it all points to Him. Not only in the specific prophecies of a Messiah, but also uh, in its sacrificial system, right? What you, what you read about in Leviticus. Uh, we no longer have to sacrifice animals in church because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, right? He, made, he paid the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Go to chapter 6. Jesus teaches us how to pray. So uh, verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Right? So the Christian faith, it's it's important to to know this, that the Christian faith is not about going to heaven when you die, right? Jesus is showing us that our prayer should be that heaven would come here. Not that we might go there. We want to see his kingdom here. We want to see God's goodness in our lives. We want God's will to be done where? On earth, just as it is in heaven, right? That's what he says. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is perfectly done in heaven. And that's how we should pray things be done on earth, according to his will. So the first part of that prayer focuses on God, right? So notice that, like the first part is uh, uh, God and his kingdom. And the next part focuses on us. It focuses on me and you and our uh, physical and spiritual needs. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. So we ask for our daily bread. God provides our physical needs. We depend on divine providence verse 12 says and we, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors but so that reminds us that we are also sinners sinners in need not only of forgiveness but also in need of forgiving right those who desire to find mercy with god must show mercy to their brothers and sisters and verse 13 says and lead us not into into temptation but deliver us from evil so this prayer really only has one subject it has like one main message and that is the salvation of the world through god right that is why we ask god to bring the kingdom and in bringing and spreading the kingdom god delivers his people from evil right he leads us not into temptation and he delivers us from evil so as believers we should pray this prayer and our prayers should be very much like this prayer Right We seek first the Kingdom of God, that's what Christ tells us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and there and that all other things will then be added. If we go to chapter seven, verse one says, "Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you speak, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do, do not notice the lock that is in your own eye? So many people use this verse in an attempt to silence their critics. They interpret Jesus Jesus's meaning as you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong, right? Both believers and non-believers do this. But if you read the context around what Jesus is saying uh, about judging, uh, about judging one another, he's saying that we should not judge hypocritically, right? Do not be a hypocrite when we point out the sin of others while we ourselves commit the same sin. We actually condemn ourselves. That's what Romans 2 verse 1 teaches. Christians are often accused of judging right, or intolerance whenever they speak out against sin. But opposing sin is not wrong. Opposing sin is the loving thing to do, especially for the other person. In judging other people, we are to speak the truth in love. That's what Ephesians 4 verse 15 teaches us. Right. The, Bible teaches us to, the Bible actually teaches us to judge. Right? We need to judge. How do you not judge people? All of scripture are commands to be wise and discerning. Right? That is to be judging. Especially in a book like Proverbs. How would you know what the bad company we are told to avoid looks like without judging? Right? But what we should take away from what Christ is saying here is that we should judge rightly and fairly and to be gentle with other people right we need to be gentle with other people whenever we do um, um point out their sins or their shortcomings or whatever it's to do it in love it's to do it with their best interest in at heart and it's always to point them to christ right not using ourselves as a standard but pointing to christ as a standard because ultimately we all fall short so in verse 15 uh jesus also warns about false prophets so verse 15 of chapter 7 says beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. so can you see how even here the Lord is calling on us to judge to judge prophets to determine whether they are true or false, so contrary to what the world says to what the world teaches, you actually can judge a book by its cover right that's that's when you that's recognizing people by their fruits. This is, this is Jesus telling us what to do. He's telling us that we have the authority to conclude that someone is inwardly a wolf, a false prophet, an enemy of God's people. So while we are not able to read the hearts and intentions of men, we are able to read their lives, right? We are able to see their conduct, how they conduct themselves, what they do, uh, 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 what comes out of their mouths, Right. And when it comes, especially to false prophets, we can judge the fruit of their ministry. False prophets; these are men uh, that are wolves dressed as sheep. And how you recognize them is by what they teach. What pro- what false prophets preach and what they teach leads to ungodliness. It leads to disobedience to God's word. In the lives of the false prophets, um, there will be there will be disobedience, right? As well as their congregants. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? the lives of false prophets and the people who follow them tend to be marked by sin and disobedience to God and his word and why do why do false teachers have huge followings why do they make huge amounts of money and and, and get a lot of a lot of success why do people follow them even when their fruit shows that they are not men of God so 2 Timothy verse uh, sorry chapter 4 tells us verse 3 says for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So empty and vain theology can spread like a virus because people, it's the people, not the false prophets. The people find false prophets who teach according to their own passions and desires, not the will of God. Right. That's what Second Timothy says. he says "The people gather for themselves, they accumulate for themselves uh, false teachers to suit their own passions passions. So these are the people that love money, uh, that love sex, that love possessions, and so they accumulate for themselves men who teach these things in the name of God. So uh, beware of false prophets, right you will know them by their fruit. and the second so that's the first discourse. the second discourse that's chapter 10 verse 5 here uh, jesus gives a teaching on missions and martyrdom so if you go to chapter 10 verse 5 it says these 12 speaking of the disciples these 12 jesus sent out instructing them go nowhere among the gentiles and enter no town of the samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of israel and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick raise the dead cleanse lepers cast out demons You receive without paying, give without pay. So Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go out on missions. But notice that it's only the Jewish first, right? He says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as I mentioned earlier, the gospel went out to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. From verse 16, Jesus speaks of the persecution that will come against the disciples. Why do Jesus' followers experience persecution? Verse 22 tells us, he says, and you will be hated for my name's sake. So we will experience opposition, ridicule, slander, and even threats against our lives for the sake of Christ. But this should not shake our faith as believers. Ultimately, we should not fear man. Verse 28 tells us that, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right. We get to the third discourse. This is in chapter uh, starting in chapter 13, this is in chapter 13, and these are the parables of Jesus, and parables are a very important thing. The mysteries of the kingdom are revealed in parables, and what is also unique and amazing about parables is that parables interpret the reader, right? That's actually a fascinating thing, at least I find it like very fascinating, right? We normally come to scripture and we are ready to interpret the scripture, but here you have scripture interpreting you as a reader. Why did Jesus use parables? He tells us in Matthew 13 verse 10. Verse 10 he says, Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do do they understand. So Jesus used parables to reveal the truth to those who wanted to know it and also to conceal the truth from those who were indifferent. So those who, like the Pharisees, they had a preconceived bias against the Lord's teaching. They would dismiss the parables as irrelevant nonsense. But those who truly sought the truth, they would understand it. So in other words, Jesus telling the parables actually makes it clear whether people really grasped the meaning of the kingdom or not. They were really a test case of whether they understood the gospel that he preached. So his goal was not to entertain the people, right? The parables might make for fun reading, but that was not the, the goal the goal rather was to make the truth clear and to show how it should influence our daily lives, right? The parables, the parables don't encourage passive listening. They demand a response. And that's what I mean by that, by, by it interpreting us, they demand a response. Just try it. Read through the parables. Notice how you will put yourself in the story, right? You will have to decide which one am I, am I the foolish servant or am I the wise one? Am I the good fertile soil? Am I the the servant who was given talent and then he went out to the market? Or did he bury it because I feared my master? right? Or am I the soil on a rocky terrain? And so the parables, they actually hide the truth for those who refuse to respond. To them, the parables are considered to be simple stories. right? The real meanings, the, the mysteries, they were hidden. And they only belong to the church. They only belong to God's people. That is why... Jesus, when he goes on to explain what the parables mean, who does he reveal it to? He reveals it to the disciples, right? If you look at uh, Luke's gospel in chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants. And, and we have that same account in, in, Matthew's, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 21. But with Luke's gospel, he shows us the response of the Pharisees who'd heard the, the parable. So verse 19 of Luke 20 says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, but they feared the people. So can you see how um, the Pharisees, they hear the the parable, but they reject it. So the usual reason that people didn't receive parables is that they just didn't like the teaching, right? Did they understand what Jesus was teaching? I think so. I think they understood. They understood the provocative claim of the parables very well, but they were not prepared to accept it and when you read mark's gospel you realize that you realize that jesus speaking in parables is not a riddle right it's not like a puzzle that oh you know what does that like really mean but what the pharisees and the scribes find so offensive and maybe even confusing is the behavior that it demands the response that a parable demands the parables demand repentance right they they demand you to see that you know i'm the foolish servant So I need to repent and put my faith in this Christ, but they refuse to do that. And so Jesus says, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, right? That man can see salvation personified, standing there, talking to them. They can see Christ and still not come to conversion and belief. So I hope, I hope that makes sense, right? Keep in mind that parables are not meant to be overly complex right i've seen papers i've seen um articles where people find a super hidden meaning uh um you know the real deep meaning of the parables remind no there tends to be two or three main points that you can take from them right instead what they are meant to do is to pack a punch they're very confrontational they're supposed to go against your conscience so okay that's the third discourse uh the fourth one is speaking on kingdom authority. So that's in chapter 18. You can turn there. So this section is about life under kingdom authority. As his his earthly ministry starts to draw to a close, Jesus teaches on the importance of humility, how to handle situations when a brother sins against you. And also the importance about the importance of forgiving those who have sinned against you, so verse fifteen of chapter eighteen says, "If a brother, if a brother sins against you, <clears throat> excuse me, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church." And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what this implies is that Christians are to be members of churches where they are held accountable to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. If there there were no relationship of accountability, it would be meaningless to say, tell it to the church. Because then the, the offending person would simply say, look, that church has no authority over me. right? They don't have any jurisdiction over me. But the church does have authority, and that is why there is church discipline and even excommunication. So verse eighteen says, "Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two or three, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For there, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So. Um, The the apostles, it's important to know that the apostles, they do not usurp Christ's lordship and authority, right? They don't do that over individual believers, um, but they do exercise authority to discipline and, if necessary, even excommunicate disobedient church members. So the expression bind and loose here, they were actually very common to Jewish people. They were common in Jewish legal phraseology. And it simply means to declare something either forbidden or to declare it allow, allowed, right? So, as, as it, so basically what this passage is saying is that as, as to working out and performing apostolic duties, they would, fulfilling, they would be fulfilling God's plan in heaven. So whenever the apostles bound something, they were forbidding it on earth. When they were uh, carrying out the will of God, when they were losing something, right? They were allowing it. They were likewise fulfilling God's eternal plan, so that's that's what that um, that, that phrase uh, reads is actually reading as I've seen it taken in many different ways, but it's in the context of church discipline so it's basically God giving his stamp of approval on what the leaders are doing right so another way to read that passage would be whatever you bind, whatever you forbid, and declare to be improper and, uh, and unlawful on earth would already have been done so in heaven. And whatever you, you choose to lose to permit or uh, declare lawful on earth would already be done so in heaven. Okay. So, um, okay, the fifth and the final discourse, this is chapter 24 to chapter 25. So this is called the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's teaching about the end of the world. And he's teaching about the destruction of the temple as well. So this Oliver discourse is, it's often quite confusing because the disciples here are asking questions about the end of the world, right? And that always just tends to be a a very complex matter. This was addressed to his disciples and Jesus is intending to give them a prophetic overview of the events that are going to happen both in the near and the distant future. So look at chapter 24. If you go to chapter 24, verse 1 says... Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So just some background. Remember, uh, you might not know this, but Herod had built a temple for the Jews, right? And then Jesus answers them in verse two. "You You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Now, if you read verse three carefully, how many questions, uh, how many questions there are they asking Jesus, right? How many do you think they're asking? It's only one, right? It's it's one question. They think they're asking one question because in their mind, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world, they are synonymous events. They think it will happen at the same time. So it's really, it's really two questions they are asking. It's one, the destruction of the temple, and two, the end of the world. So when Jesus answers them, he's answering the two questions. And what will, what will happen often is people will put the destruction of the temple as referring to the end of the world. When really he'll be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. and so people come to this this passage of scripture and then they take what Christ is talking about in eighty seventy and they apply it to the end of the world, right? So um, let's let's break it down. Maybe it'll make more sense. So look at verse 15. Verse verse 15 says, "So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place," he says, "Let the reader understand." Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Now, if this passage is applying to the end of the world, first it doesn't matter where you're running to, right? It doesn't. This is referring to what happened in the year AD 70. He's talking about the judgment that is coming on the land, right? The abomination of desolation. So the abomination of desolation is the false worship in the temple. When the Romans came, and this is actually a historical fact, uh, historical fact. you can look this up. When the Romans came, um, the christians they fled to jerusalem right they ran away from jerusalem because jesus had told them to run away in this passage he said you must flee so there were no christians who stayed behind and remember that the bible also doesn't teach us it doesn't say that we must try to become martyrs right even paul fled when they tried to kill him it's not cowardly it's it's love to preach another day love to preach the gospel another day so it's a it's a historical fact that Christians had fled and escaped in AD 70, but the Jewish people, the Jews who were nationalistic and they were all about Jew pride, um, <laughs> Jew pride. They stayed and said, we're going to fight, right? We're going to fight the Romans who come in, who are coming to persecute us. We're going to fight these Romans. And those Jewish people, they were massacred, right? And there's historical books that have been written about the horror of what happened that day. It was really bad. The Jews, the Jews were being starved to death. And they would try to escape Jerusalem, but they were under siege. So they tried to escape. Uh, some of them would actually try to escape with their money. And what they would do is they would swallow their money and they would try to get away. The Romans would catch them and they would crucify them. But they got bored with crucifying so many people. So they would try to find new ways to kill a person and torture them just for fun. And in, doing, in, fi- in, in torturing these people in creative ways they realize that, hold on, these Jews are swallowing their money. So they would start to cut them open while they were alive and then they would get the money out of them and then they they would leave them to to bleed out. So that's just an example. These are the kinds of horrors that would happen on that day. And so the Lord is saying there, make sure you get away. Judgment is coming. Hence why he says in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So people that jesus is talking to will be the very ones that will experience that event that judgment right they are the ones who experience ad 70 and verse 36 is where i i believe he's answering the question concerning the end of the age right he's answering what will happen towards the end of the world he switches the question verse 36 says but concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father only you see that Verse, 30, verse 37 For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then the two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. So the word taken there refers to judgment. Right, So one will be taken to judgment, which implies that the other one remains to experience salvation. Most people say that it, this refers to the rapture, right? Uh, that Christ's people will be raptured. But just for, just for your understanding, the taken that is used here in this passage is not good. right? You don't want to be the one who's taken. Uh, the judgment is going to come like a flood and some are going to be taken in this judgment. And verse 32, therefore, stay awake for you do not know what day your lord is coming. And then in chapter 25 he gives us two parables on how we should live in light of his return. So a lot of people get hung up on when is the lord going to come back? Right? When is the when is the lord Jesus Christ coming back? Is it this year? Is it in 2030? Is it when is it going to happen? And they do all sorts of cal- calculations and theories. But if you read the passage, he tells the disciples about 70 AD <laughs> But about that day, you do not know. So don't waste your time on it. He gives us two parables where the focus isn't on what year or what month and what day. But rather, Jesus is telling us that we should worry about how we are living, right? We shouldn't worry about when you'll be come back. Worry about how you're living. The one parable is about the ten virgins. The ten virgins have their lamps and they're supposed to wait for the groom to come. Five of them have enough oil for their lamps. The other five don't. The Bridegroom takes longer than you think to arrive, and so five of them, because they're prepared, they have enough oil and they keep their lamps going until uh, while the while the bridegroom takes long, the other five they run, of, run out of oil right and these are the, and these five are the foolish ones, but the wise ones don't don't run out of oil. So what is Jesus saying with that parable? Well, he is a bridegroom, right um, and there is his bride, he's going to fetch his bride. But his bride is made up of those who endure to the end, right? The wise persevere to the end. The foolish think it's not going to be so long. So that's one of the parables. The next is a parable of the talents. Uh, the master gives his servants three talents. Um, he gives one five talents and he gives uh, the second one two talents. And the last one is only given one talent. The one who, u- who has five uses it to make five more. The one who has two uses it to make two more. The one who has one talent, he doesn't use it at all. And verse 18 says, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So what is the Lord saying? In light of you not knowing when I'm going to come back, you should get busy and use your gifts. Use your talents. Don't just sit around saying, oh, well, the world is going to come to an end. Christ is going to come back. What is the point? No, get busy, right? Use what God has given you. He has given every single one of us different gifts and abilities and that is what makes the kingdom so amazing. And from this parable, it seems that you can multiply them, right? As you use them, as you use your talents, your gifts, God will give you more gifts and abilities, right? So live life. That is the focus here. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you should not watch the signs and read God's word and be ready, right? We need to be prepared for the end. But what the parable is teaching us uh, is always be ready, right? But get busy as well. Get get busy doing uh, um, um, the Lord's will before His second coming. And remember, Jesus says that not even the Son of Man knows the day, and that is referring to His hu- His human nature. In His divine nature, obviously He knows everything. But in His human nature, remember He submitted His human nature to live like a human being. Son of Man, the Son of Man is a title of humanity. It's also a title of deity, like in the book of Daniel. Um, it is only things that the Holy Spirit revealed to Christ in his humanity that he knows. Okay, so we're running out of time. So I'm going to skip to the last chapter, chapter 28. How does the book close? So in chapter 28, we find the Great Commission. And uh, really, it is, it's all about worship, right? So verse 16 says, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. So notice again, the book began with worship and it ends with worship. But all, but all of the Gospels, they end in such a way that it is the end, but it's not really the end. right? It's not the end of the story because you and I are living in the continuation of it right? The end here is a command to go out and make disciples of all the nations. So here is a challenge to the Jewish reader that Matthew is writing to. God's plan is for all people to belong to him, right? Both Jew and, and Gentile. Moses had, Moses had an experience with a burning bush and he says to God, who shall I say has sent me, right? Basically asking uh, who's going to go with me? And, and then God says there that I am that I am. And what does Jesus say now? He says, I am with you till the end. I will be with you till the very end. All authority on earth and, and on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Kingship, authority, uh, the son of God, the son of David, right? It's, it all belongs to Christ. And so he has authority. He has control. He's He's in charge. You know, you don't have to fear that um, this is a mission that is, that is based on your working or your success or your, or our fruits, um, or our labors, right? The Lord is with us to work within and to cause, uh, to go, to cause the growth of his kingdom. And so verse 18 says, uh, "And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so that's how the book ends. It ends, but again, it's really the beginning. It's the beginning of the church, and the disciples are told to go and make more disciples, to bring in more worshippers from all the ends of the earth. And so you and I can do this today with confidence because Jesus says at the end of verse 20, I am with you, right? And the goal is to get more worshippers, get more people who are living for Christ, more people who are proclaiming the name of Christ um, uh, to the lost and to those who are in darkness. So that's that's our overview of Matthew's Gospel. We'll end it there. Um, Are there any questions, uh, comments, uh, thoughts that anyone would like to share? Take the silence as no. Okay, please just thanks. It's a pleasure. Okay, if everyone is happy, if there's no other issues, then we're gonna end it there. Um.